Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney with the broadest and deepest experience in all forms of aircraft propulsion. PrattWhitney.com TA Connections, the industry's most comprehensive airline lodging and crew logistics program. TAConnections.com Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com slash airlines. And Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale. SeaburyCapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at AirlinesConfidential.com. Welcome aboard the Airlines Confidential Podcast. I'm Ben Baldanza along with Chris Chimes, and we're about to embark on our weekly round of airline news, chatter, a bit of gossip, and hopefully some insight. Before getting to Chris, however, I want to let everyone know that I spent two days at the MRO Americas conference in Orlando, and there was a lot of good news from there. There were 400 exhibitors. There were about 4,000 people there live and another 4,000 virtually there. So there was a lot of buzz around all the good things happening in the industry. While we were there, we got a lot of good interviews, a lot of good questions, and just a lot of good buzz. And over the next few weeks, we'll be talking about all these things, including a special interview at the end of this show. Also this week, we're going to bring our roving correspondent, Chris Sloan, to talk to us about his take on two industry firsts, the Avalo Airline Inaugural and JetBlue's first flight on an Airbus A220. But first, let's get to the news. So Chris, take it away. You got it, dude. First, to close the loop on a discussion from last week, the TSA extended the face mask requirement for planes and other transportation sectors through September 13th here in the U.S. So we could check that off the list as far as watching that. Now let's talk about wide bodies and long haul here in the U.S. The two biggest U.S. carriers, American and United, were making some news over the last two weeks in different ways. In the absence of weak international demand right now, American has filed summer 2021 schedule changes that upgrade 18 domestic routes, 777s on routes like Miami to JFK and Miami to LAX, and 787 Dreamliners on routes like Chicago, Philly, and Miami to Las Vegas. Separately, United CEO Scott Kirby was very talkative on a Washington Post Live event last week and said what many have been thinking. Anyone who wants to travel long haul internationally for a while is going to need a vaccine. He didn't say his airline was going to require it, but his comments in combination with the news out of the EU that vaccinated travelers would be welcome across Europe was more evidence that vaccine requirements were going to be linked to travel for a while, even if the U.S. refuses to go down the path of a vaccine passport. So, Ben, that's a lot of things to process, but uh, why don't you try and unpack this for our listeners? Thanks, Chris. I'm going to talk about the wide bodies first, since the other two are both related to sort of, uh, you know, COVID and flying again. On the wide bodies going domestically, this is not a surprise to anybody watching in the industry, but I think a lot of investors and a lot of airline people were nervous that this exact thing might happen because without 
international demand, putting these large airplanes on big domestic routes is probably the best thing that airlines like American and United can do, right? They're paying for these airplanes. They have the crews. Why not use the capacity? On the other hand, consumers should be happy about this because it probably means fares are going to stay pretty low all summer because it's just going to dump a lot of seats into the market. And pricing in this industry is always a function of how many seats there are in every market. So while you can understand while American and United are doing this, from a return standpoint, I think it's probably going to hurt the industry somewhat. From a customer standpoint, it's going to be great because they're going to have nice, good, wide-body products with really low fares and a lot of big routes. So it'll be interesting to see. Um, Obviously, American United didn't buy these planes to fly to Las Vegas and to fly to Miami domestically and things like that. But they're kind of doing the best with what they have. And again, not a total surprise, but there's a lot of seats that are out there for sale this summer, some of them on these wide bodies. And the real trick for the industry is going to be how to fill all those seats. And the likely answer to that is going to be low fares. Across the travel industry, there's a lot of talk about, you know, campaigns and and combined efforts across hotels, airlines, amusements, other other sectors of travel on, on how we get travel going again. And so in some ways, this might be the airline's contribution to that effort is just making more seats available, making cheap fares available, and getting people to travel. So from a financial standpoint, I see the hesitation and the trepidation, but um, we got to get people flying. It seems like they want to fly and travel. And so you got to do something with these planes. Well, that's a great point. And that supports the next issue too, which is extending the mask mandate until September. I think that's much more about confidence in the traveling public than it is about safety. I'm not saying that that it's not more safe to wear a mask. Of course it is. But I think the real good thing for the industry about that is that anyone who is hesitant about flying can feel safer when they get on a plane now, knowing that everyone will be masked at least through the summer. So I think that's a really good thing for bringing back demand. Again, I know there's a lot of politics and thinking around mask wearing, and my comments really aren't about science at all. It's all about human nature and wanting to be able to feel safe. And I think when people get on a plane this summer, they're going to be more likely to fly if they know everybody is masked up. And Scott Kirby's comments, I think, are you know about everybody needed a vaccine. I think that's a logical conclusion about what's going to happen. I don't know what the U.S. is going to do you know, about having formal vaccine passports or not. But I can see a lot of countries around the world saying, if you want to come into my country, you have to show me that you're vaccinated. And that seems to me a logical way that countries can protect the spread of the virus in within their own borders. Um, we've seen talk this week, for example, that the U.S. is going to be limiting travel from India to the U.S. because of the challenges in India with COVID right now. It's the same kind of thing, right? And so I think what Scott said makes a lot of sense. I think wearing the masks on the planes in terms of consumer confidence makes sense. So like you said, Chris, 
the bigger objective here is getting people traveling again. So anything we can do to get people comfortable with booking that trip, taking that vacation, whether it's wearing masks on board, putting wide bodies in, having lots of cheap fares, those are all good things for the big, broad effort of we want everybody to fly again. I know we're going to talk to Chris Sloan in a bit about Avalo, and we've talked quite a bit recently about startups like Breeze and the failure of long-haul, low-cost startups like Norwegian. But Ben, did you see that Wall Street Journal story over the weekend about more than 90 new airlines launching globally in 2021? I saw another list of more than 150 carriers looking to launch in 2021. Now in 2017, 78 airlines launched globally and 25 others went out of business. So I guess the 90 isn't that extreme, but are, are these brilliant business people? Are they dreamers? Are they vultures? Are they the village idiots? I mean, who's starting these airlines? <laughs> They're all of the above, Chris. <laughs> you know, running an airline is a real tough thing. And the business is a real tough thing in terms of being able to be competitive. There's a lot of scale advantages in this industry. So even high cost airlines like an American United or Delta have huge advantages of having great positions in really big airports and long tenured histories where customers know them, trust them, frequent fire programs that are rich and deep and things. And that's hard to compete with. If you're a new airline like Avalo is and like Breeze will be and maybe 90 others that are thinking of, my guess is a lot of those will never get off the ground, but some of them will. And it really comes down to, are there markets that need these seats? And certainly around the world, the number of people who fly each year is different by country. The amount of infrastructure in terms of just runways and gates and things like that is different by country. So some countries have more growth opportunity than others. Some of those 90 airlines are not you know, they're not 90 in the US, right? They're global. So there's going to be places that are growing faster than the US and need more seats. And there's going to, there are going to be others that will never start and some that'll start and fail. And maybe a few of them will survive. I mean, when you look at the airlines around the world flying today, most of them have been in business for quite a while because new startups in this industry don't have a great track record. That's my sense. And I'm not wishing badly on any of these 90 or 150 who want to start. It's just that there's often more good ideas than there is money and opportunity. Well, we know there's lots of cheap aircraft. I saw somewhere that uh, Avalo even got a great deal on the seats from an airline that turned brand new seats back into a manufacturer. So there's cheap product out there. I kind of scratch my head when we're looking at this global shortage for airline pilots, who's going to fly these startups. So we'll have to see how this plays out. I've always wanted to start an airline called Fresh Air. Um, I, I didn't see that one on the list, but I always thought that would be a, a catchy name for a, a new airline. NPR might sue you though, Chris. <laughs> well, that's true. So. <laughs> it's time to thank a sponsor. And in this case, it's Pratt & Whitney, the world leader in the design, manufacture, and service of aircraft and helicopter engines and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is driving the next generation of more sustainable travel. This revolutionary geared turbofan engine is allowing airlines and airports to open new routes and fly more people farther and with less fuel and much lower noise. Learn more at pwgtf.com. 
And then Ben, uh, Boeing reported its Q1 results last week as well, rather dreary news again. They tried to put a positive spin pointing to the positive sign coming from their airline customers and traffic coming back, but they're falling behind on meaning the Air Force One delivery in 2024. And then of course the 737 MAX issues won't go away with the electrical issues that now have grounded aircraft. They continue to take a beating. Uh, what's your take, Ben? Well, my take is Boeing is in a tough situation with their military side in a bit, also with an administration that may not support as much military spending as the previous administration. That's going to affect them somewhat. And obviously, the 737 MAX has just, you know, from what was once a hugely positive and optimistic program, has just become a bit of an albatross around them. Not that it's not a good airplane and not that there won't be a lot of them flying eventually, but it's certainly a drag on the company right now. Boeing's a good American company. They make good products, but they're not out of the woods yet. And they've got a ways to go before they can sort of start reporting positive results again. Not only do airlines need to start buying airplanes again, but they got to start putting products in the air that can compete with Airbus and that can, you know, result in you know, maybe one of these 150 new airlines will buy a lot of Boeing products, but they're going to need some of that. It's going to be a long road, I think, for for a company like Boeing. As good as they are, they're not going away, but they're not out of the woods yet. That's my sense, Chris. Yeah, I feel like I'm watching an ice skater in the Olympics, and you know, when sometimes some of them, when they fall early on, they rebound and just skate the hell out of the program, and others just kind of fall apart and keep falling. And I, I just feel like they just keep stumbling, and everyone's rooting for them, certainly. And um, they're, like you said, they're a great company, and they sell great products, and they manufacture great planes and lots of other things. And so uh, we're just like all waiting for something to turn positive and stay positive. Well, that's exactly right. We'll be right back with our chat with Chris Sloan. The Airlines Confidential is brought to you by TA Connections. Travel Alliance and Hotel Connections have come together to become TA Connections, paving the way for a new chapter in crew logistics management. Learn more at taconnections.com. TA Connections is a fleet core company, the world's leading provider of technology and services for crew and passenger logistics management. It's great to welcome back Chris Sloan to the podcast. Chris is an aviation journalist and founder of the commercial aviation news site, Archive, and a certified ab geek. And he's also uh, our roving correspondent, if you will. Chris is a regular fixture on what we call the aviation fam tour circuit, where media are given access to new airlines, aircraft, routes and all kinds of new things. And he just got back from both the Avalo Airlines inaugural and also the maiden flight of the first JetBlue Airbus 220. Chris, great to have you here. Thank you. you no, know, it's great. And I also want to add to that. I'm also a, a student of Ben's at the airline economics course. And I, my big pressing question is, do I get extra credit for this? <laughs> you, you were going, you were going a, great until you said that, Chris, but go ahead. He's, he's a tough prof. Let me tell you, Professor Bozenzi, you don't want to cross him. Well, just uh, so, just do uh, well on the final, Chris. Okay, I'm I'm already sweating that as of this morning. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So I know uh, you had a busy uh, last couple of weeks. Um, why don't you talk to us about the Airbus flight? Well, the A220 inaugural was, you know, it was like a flight that was three years in the making. And um, and for me personally, I was at the rollout of this when it was the uh, C series back in 2013, and I was on the first commercial flight ever of that plane back in 2016. So. 
and, and Delta as well. So to see it come stateside to JetBlue um, was really fun. I mean, it's the first new, all new aircraft that JetBlue has put into service since 2005 when they launched the E-190s, which this replaces. And there was a swarm of people, and I think pretty much everybody agreed it's it's a night and day difference um, in virtually every respect from uh, from the E-190. How, how so? Well, I mean, you know, it's probably the most comfortable narrow body aircraft uh, you've ever been on. I mean, if you if you if you've flown on it, it's it becomes immediately your favorite. I mean, between the uh, small touches like the aisles actually being wide enough for somebody to pass in the middle of a of a of a catering service to the windows being so massive, double the size of A320, to the cabin having seven foot high ceilings and space bins and the two three two configuration, which means you only. 20% chance of having the dreaded middle seat, which isn't so dreaded because, you know, there's, these seats are 18 and a half inches wide, which are the widest seats really in the, in the narrow body world. You know, and on top of that, you know, it's just JetBlue. I mean, just the sleek packaging from the IFE to the catering to the, you know, even a lot of the, you know, really small, beautiful details like in the bulkhead, they have uh, a, a, the pattern is all this Morse code and you have to figure out what that, what it is. And if you're true geeky, or if you just know who to ask at JetBlue, you'll find out that that actually means hello, JetBlue. You know, in the labs, uh, you know, being New York's hometown airline, they actually, instead of, you know, Delta has the loo with a view, the window in the, in the, in the lab. But uh, JetBlue went with uh, this really beautiful blue seal, uh, subway tile. Looks like a, the, lab, the bathroom in a subway um, in New York. But the bathrooms are much cleaner on a JetBlue flight than they are in uh, Penn Station. So it was a... Uh, it was just a really, you know, elegant, beautiful package. I mean, the aircraft is just sublimely quiet. And, you know, and again, I mean, the JetBlue is, has even taken the, the, the IFE a step further than they, than they have on any other aircraft with the, uh, the Avant II. This, what's unique about this is to keep the weight down is the, uh, the, they, they go with a single antenna for the broadband connection as well as for live TV. So you didn't see any, you're still able to receive, you know, 1080p high definition video at the same time everybody's you know got uh you know got their devices going so at one point on the flight they had 150 devices going at the same time 140 seats plus 150 internet connections so a lot of people were two screening it um double screening it so again just a a really uh you know beautiful package and selfishly i think everybody was just so excited to be back in the air in the middle of a pandemic uh you know and and, and having something for a change to actually celebrate was a, a switch, but it was, uh, you know, and, and I think my favorite part of the flight and the, and the airplane is uh, really poignant. I mean, this is true inside, this is inside baseball, inside baseball, uh, but the aircraft was named after Rob Dewar, uh, who's, you know, the, who's called the father of the C-Series. He was the original head of the program, and he's kind of like, in some ways, the last man standing from Bombardier, who's made the transition over to Airbus, and so the fact that they actually named the airplane after him and... Um, you know, it's really, really sweet, and, and, and a number of people, uh, the geeks, noticed that. And I think that's only the second JetBlue plane actually named after a person, the other one being, I think, David Nealman. Uh, they named one after him. So it was a good uh, week to drink the uh, the blue Kool-Aid. <laughs> well, nice Chris, time. a lot of our listeners know that I serve on the board of JetBlue, so would you please say I did not pay you to say everything you just said? <laughs> no, there's no uh, there's no conflict of interest. And even if I ever try to pump Ben uh, in class for a, any comment about JetBlue, it's like, we get cut off. So no conflicts of interest. I had to pay for that fare like everybody else and also pay for my upgrade with the extra legroom seat. So you get no favors from this guy. <laughs> Chris, did the uh, JetBlue team kind of give any hints about their plans for this um, aircraft long-term? 
Yes, um, I mean, uh, they've, they've got 60 on order and they've got options to for those to be, to be between 100s and 300s. Um, but they, I believe they added the order, but the, they're going to be replacing the 190s on a one-for-one basis over the course of the next, uh, through 2025 for the original order. And um, I think through this, at the end of the, by the end of this year, there'll be six to seven in operation. Right now, it's uh, just going to be pretty much used on, uh, I think, Boston, Tampa, Boston, Fort Lauderdale, and Boston, Orlando. And it's really, uh, you know, they, they make a big point of it being kind of the Boston airplane where, you know, Boston, it seems for JetBlue is like a, it's an airline with an airline. It's, you know, they have the most nonstop destinations. They dominate that market. And it's a, it's a really potent weapon that allows them to open up, you know, new thin routes, um, add frequency, and then, but, uh, and then ultimately add some really interesting, um, you know, new routes, perhaps hub over flying and interesting point to point opportunities, you know, because the aircraft has range of, you know, right now they're flying at, you know, 12, 1500, you know, miles uh, stages, but it, you know, it does have range up to like 33, 3400 miles. So conceivably, you know, it could cross the Atlantic. It can, it could do transcon. So the capability of the plane to be, you know, where the 190 was really limited to the eastern part of JetBlue's network, this allows the airline, I think, to have a lot more relevance throughout the heartland and, and in other, you know, new markets and focus cities, uh, just because it's just so enormously, you know, capable. You know, I mean, I've heard that, the, you know, that they, you know, it, it could even be like a, you know, transatlantic aircraft that one day could get like a, you know, some baby version of Mint. So, you know, it's a really remarkable plane. I think everybody who steps off of it is just as, is, you know, it was one of those aircraft like uh, the, like the Dreamliner. It was like, it's great for the customers. I don't know if it's great for the manufacturer. It pretty much bought Bombardier down. But from an airline perspective and a passenger experience, um, everybody just loves it. Well, a new airplane is certainly exciting, but you also flew on the first new airline in the U.S. since Virgin America. So tell us about your flight on Avalo. Well, Avalo, you know, on one hand, you have JetBlue, which is like, you know, slick and beautifully packaged and everything. And Avalo, you know, felt like kind of like a, uh, you know, I guess what when they have advanced pre-showings for a Broadway play, this was like an advanced pre-showing for an off-Broadway play. You know, it's an amazing story when you dig down to it as, you know, y'all, everybody, I believe, is aware in this audience of what they're trying to do. But they only really started planning this airline in earnest back in November. That's when they gave their their green light, you know. And, um, you know, I sat with some of the executives at uh, a wine lunch. And uh, six months ago, they had one aircraft. They had, you know, just a few employees. And now they've scaled up to, you know, two aircraft with a third on the way, 11 stations. They hadn't even decided on Burbank. And in two weeks from now, they'll, they'll be at their initial base. So, I mean, it's just come up really, really, really fast. And, you know, they've had some challenges. I mean, the, the Radix uh, GDS failed for like four days for them, which really hurt, um, which made it difficult, even on check-in morning. I mean, you're on an LCC and it's nobody's checking bags, but everybody's in the check-in line because there is no online check-in and there was no printer boarding pass. So the whole thing you could tell was, to their credit, they got it off the ground. But I mean, it was it was pretty rushed. Even to the point of like nobody, even the employees, nobody can figure out whether it's a Velo or Uvelo or I mean, I, we heard the boarding announcement and on the plane, like it was pronounced like four different ways. And they just finally gave up and they said, tomato, tomato, just call us what you want. Just pay for us and fly us. And we don't care what you call us. So, you know, I've done a lot of firsts and I've done a lot of lasts. I did the last flight ever. I was the last passenger ever on U.S. Airways. I was the last passenger ever on AirTran. I was the last person, no offense, Chris, but the last person uh, for U.S. Airways to ever lose their luggage. <laughs> but um, Avalo, in this case, was the first time ever being on an airline. So the enthusiasm w- was kind of charming, right? I mean, at the gate, 
you know, Andrew Levy, who's, I have to say, is just an infectious leader, you know, very humble, really, really uh, disarmingly personable, you know, literally personally taking every boarding pass, thanking everybody for joining the flight. He gets up there to cut the scissors. You know, nobody's kind of there to be at his little, uh, you know, it's supposed to be like a little tiny event. And there's, he's like mobbed by photographers and all their teammates. I mean, this is their first day. And so they're like literally doing things like, you know, they're just trying to get their sea legs you know, up under them and every little milestone, like the first boarding announcement, the first safety briefing, the first time, you know, doors are closed, everything gets a, th- a round of applause. It was just, I, I, I will say it was really, I haven't felt that kind of sweetness or enthusiasm since the last AirTran flight. I mean, it was just, it was a really nice moment, but you can tell they're really, I wouldn't say not ready for prime time, but um, they, they joked during the flight, we had an apple, we had a, instead of a champagne toast, they're like, well, we're going to do an apple cider toast because we don't have a liquor license yet. So, and, uh, you know, and obviously, and then they look out at the crowd and it's like, there's a lot of under, you know, under 25 year old ad geeks out there and like, and if, even if we did, we couldn't serve it to half of you on this plane. So, um, and you know, it's like, you know, we're just happy to get pushed back on time, much less have to card and ID everybody for, for a glass of champagne. So it was a really, it was a really nice moment and really unique because, uh, you know, talking to the crew, there was a few that had come from established airlines, but a number of people, it was like not only their first day with an airline, it was the first time they'd ever been a flight attendant or the first time they'd ever worked being a customer service agent. So it's a pretty motley uh, homebrewed type of feeling, but there was a lot of class to it. And um, I think who knows, I think the irony there is you were flying to an airport named after the Charles Schultz airport in Santa Rosa is the first destination. And he was the creator of peanuts and you're flying on a plane that's charging peanuts for fares. Um, so that was, that, that joke was made a lot and people were like, Oh, we're going to Sonoma County. I know California can't do a water cannon. Can we get it like a wine cannon salute? So it was all, it was all in all, it was just a, it was a pretty fun and convivial um, experience, you know, whether or not the airline, you know, makes it, I mean, we had 140 passengers by the looks of it. Most were ad geeks, investors, a lot of employees. Um, there were a few people that were absolutely bewildered at what was going on. So when people look around and be bewildered, you're like, Oh, if you're bewildered, you're probably a paying customer. So Chris, you said Avalo and you said Avalo. What is it? Well, I asked and I was told Avalo. That's what that's okay. what I was told. But again, well, I, I so I for what it's worth, I sent an email to Andrew Levy, and he phonetically spelled it Avalo. Did he say it was Avalo? He like did it phonetically, like capital A H dash V E L dash O. Seeing the court comms person I was on said. Avalo, and they spell it like uh, like oy, like well, uh, oy ve yeah. we, <laughs> we all know the PR people don't know anything. So, oh, sorry. Oh, <laughs> like you can say that we can't. We can't, right? That's right. Well, Chris, I mean, thanks again for joining us. You're welcome back anytime. You do something cool like this again, and are willing to talk to us and our listeners about it. Well, the next one I'm I'm going to be on that just keeps getting pushed back endlessly is uh, is Breeze. So that'll uh, that'll be a good story too. So hopefully, in the next six weeks, we'll be on to talk about that one. Well, I'll look forward to that. Well, listeners, coming up, we've got your questions. We've also got a reminder that Clear makes travel safer and easier. Become a member of Clear, and you'll enjoy frictionless journeys when you use Clear's Home to Gate feature, which lets you know exactly the best time to leave for the airport. Plus, Clear's signature experience helps you move seamlessly through airport security. Where will you go? 
Get out there back again with Clear. And there's a special offer for Airlines Confidential listeners. Visit clearme.com and you'll receive two months free, including for up to three of your family members, using the promo code Airlines Confidential through July 1st. That's clearme.com, promo code Airlines Confidential. The Airlines Confidential podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome back, and thanks again to Chris Sloan, our roving reporter, for his report. Ben, it's time to open the Airlines Confidential mailbag, and our first email is from our listener, Alex Monero, who didn't like our response to the question about the Delta Latam deal that we talked about last week. He didn't use the specific word, but my kids would have said that was lame. And he specifically wrote us, your answer on the Delta Latam question seemed really unclear. Ben insinuated that Latam was in Sky Team, which they're not, and they don't plan to join. But also there was no discussion about the airline offloading all their 350s, which will inhibit some of their Miami aspirations with Delta. Well, I own this lame response. And so, Alex, you're absolutely right. I think I did say that LATAM moved from One World to Sky Team, but you're right. They're not in formally in Sky Team and they've not said anything about joining, but they are partners with Delta. And there are other partners of Delta who are also not in Sky Team. So, if you had to think of them as being at least affiliated with one of the alliances, it would be the Delta Alliance, which is Sky Team. But you're right. They're not formally a member. I think their deal with Delta is going to provide most of the benefits they would have got from that anyway, which is probably why they're not formally in Sky Team. You're right about that. But on the issue of them offloading their 350s, I'm not sure that's going to inhibit their Miami aspirations with Delta. LATAM has served Miami for many, many years, long before the A350 even existed. They have other equipment from a number of markets they fly. They can use narrow body service into Miami from deeper South America. They have other wide bodies that aren't the real expensive A350s that can reach Miami just as they've done historically. So So I think Miami is in a very important station for LATAM, and I don't think the offloading of their 350s had anything to do with less interest in serving Miami. I think it was 100% due to those are real high cost, high fixed cost airplanes going into a market where long haul demand might not be as strong as it's been somewhat. So Alex, thanks for keeping us on the straight and narrow with that. It was my mistake, not Chris's, Um, but that's uh, really good. It's always good to know that our listeners will correct us when we make kind of a boneheaded comment like LATAMs and SkyTeam. And Ben, uh, then this is from Steve. Uh, I work for an ACMI carrier who has a contract with Amazon amongst many other contracts. The growth of Amazon is incredible and increasing every day. I was curious as to your thoughts about how Amazon's growth would have an impact on FedEx and UPS and their operations in the future. Amazon seems to have a leg up on their competition because they have their own online store in collaboration with Whole Foods and other small stores. Meanwhile, FedEx and UPS have none. Also, Amazon has been building some impressive sort facilities that are enormous, such as Cincinnati, Alliance, and Riverside. It seems they have plans to expand their operations and fulfillment centers into just about every major part of the country and city. 
My question is, with such a large operation with so many aircraft, will the FAA require them to have their own operating certificate? Will they no longer be able to contract out to ACMIs like Atlas, ABX, and ATI? Would Amazon make a move to buy one of these airlines, or maybe several, if they need the aircraft and the crew to operate them? I love the podcast, and I learn a lot from you, so keep it going. Well, this is a great question from Steve. I'm sure most of our listeners know, but for a few who may not, ACMI carrier that he's talking about, that stands for Aircraft Crew Maintenance and Insurance. It's basically paying someone else to fly for you. Another airline does a flight that you pay them to do. And that's exactly what Steve's carrier does for Amazon is they fly planes where Amazon tells them to fly filled with products that Amazon puts in them. So he had a lot of good questions there. I think that um, it'll be possible for Amazon to continue to use ACMI operations. Essentially, Amazon is a huge logistics company, right? Yes, they sell lots of things. But their real business is how do I get it to customers quickly and for the lowest cost? And that's a big logistics game. So by using ACMI operations, it helps them because they can buy the capacity they need, but not have to deal with the capital cost of buying, owning, and running the airplanes that they would have to do with their own operating certificate. Now, over time, they may have to have their own operating certificate if they want to run their own airline. And Amazon is good about finding ways to do things, doing things efficiently. And if they find that it's more efficient to run their own airplane or their own airplanes and their own airline, that's probably the route they'd have to go. But my guess is, is Amazon is thinking even beyond that more and thinking about how can they get into more autonomous movements and having more um, distribution centers closer to big population bases where they don't even need airplanes and can use trucks and eventually drones and things like that. But I would trust that Amazon's going to do things to keep prices low and keep their distribution costs low. As an ACMI operator for Amazon, I think that job's pretty safe for at least the next couple of years because Amazon's going to keep growing and they're going to need your service, I think, Steve. Airlines Confidential welcomes your feedback, comments, and questions. Our phone number where you can leave a comment or question is 202-964-0177, or you can email us at questions at airlinesconfidential.com, or visit our website at airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. We're available on all the major podcast platforms, and you can ask Amazon Alexa or Google Assist to turn us on. Just say, play the Airlines Confidential podcast. Chris, one more quick question. This one's from Rachel in DFW. Ben and Chris, I'm interested in your thoughts about the news coverage of the Breeze business model for hiring and paying flight attendants. As a flight attendant with almost 27 years of experience that has witnessed enormous change, mergers, bankruptcy, and safety challenge, I know what I think of David Neoman's idea, but curious about your reaction. Chris? So for our listeners who aren't familiar, Breeze Airways founder David Neilman was quoted in Forbes last week saying that his plan is to staff his cabins with Utah college students who will work part-time, defined as 15 days a month, be paid a salary of $1,200 per month, plus housing, and online college tuition re- reimbursement of $6,000 per year. He said they'll essentially be viewed as interns. He doesn't see a flight attendant improving with seniority, so he's trying to use the flight attendant role as a pathway for other jobs at the company or as a way for them to work their way through college to go on to some other career. 
So Rachel, thanks for the question. Here's my take. It's David Nealman's airline, so I guess he can run it like he wants, as long as he follows federal labor and wage laws. But the Association of Flight Attendants certainly doesn't think it's legal, and they vow a fight. Uh, what Nealman is clearly trying to do is avoid the high wage costs associated for this work group that come with airline seniority. I can't tell if it's structured in a way to avoid medical or retirement benefits. And 15 full days of flying a month is pretty much full time for many flight attendants. And so I'm not even sure if that pays a living wage, although I guess if you factor in the housing and the tuition, it rolls up into something more valuable. This idea is creative, and in light of all the new ways of working in this new gig economy, I guess it's an aviation response to that trend. But personally, I think it's a rather patronizing management approach. Uh, I can't address the legal issues. We've got an invitation out to Sarah Nelson of the Association of Flight Attendants to join us on a future show. So I think this would be an interesting topic for Ben and I to talk about. But clearly, when the AFA was able to designate flight attendants as a certificated work group in the FAA Reauthorization Act of 2003, someone was clearly thinking a long game here. I don't think they envisioned this idea 20 years ago, but flight attendants are not interns. They play an important safety role, and they're recognized by the FAA as such. So I personally wouldn't want to work in a job in which management was prejudging it to be dead end, and that's kind of what this message is sending. But again, that's just me. But it'll certainly be interesting to watch this play out. Ben, what do you think? Well, I think among the things David Nealman probably doesn't want around the startup of his new airline is big controversy about who his flight attendants are and how they're paid. And I'm sure he's not going to be want to want to be seen, you know, in sort of someone who's sort of labor bashing or or sort of like is he the new Frank Lorenzo kind of thing, right? I know that's, that's, a, that's an extreme interpretation of Rachel's note, but clearly this is a different way to think about the role of flight attendants, that, you know, there are people who, you know, are in that job for, you know, a sh- very short term while they're getting their degree and then go on to do something else. And whether that might be true for some flight attendants at some times, whether that's true for the whole class of employees who proudly are flight attendants in this business, it's really an interesting approach. And it'll see how much this ends up dogging the startup of Breeze or whether or not it stays, you know, a back burner issue. This is a real interesting one to watch, I think. Yeah, it's kind of a softball to certainly to labor right now. So as you said, I don't think uh, anyone wants this to be a a distraction to the startup. I don't think they want uh, Breeze airports picketed by flight attendants uh, as their starting service. So, you know, we'll have to watch this, but um, I kind of scratched my head at this one. Finer Wine is next, but someone who never whines is Seabury Capital Group, the specialty financing and investment banking firm with more than 25 years of experience in aviation, aerospace, financial services, and technology. Explore their expertise and global reach at seaburycapital.com. Ben, our finer wine is from Kim in Lutz, Florida, and she's hopping mad at American Airlines. Guys, AA took my reservation, and when my credit card provider declined the transaction due to needing verification for the amount, the airline dropped the reservation. They said they emailed me three times, but I didn't get it, and it's kind of hard to miss that. I never got any emails, and now when I need to make the reservation again, the flight went from $1,900 to $2,500. This trip is to memorialize my mother who died of COVID over the holidays. 
When I called to complain, they sent me to their site to email them the complaint. I keep trying to do that, but the site only says, oops, something went wrong. This is the worst airline and I will never travel them again. Well, Chris, I think there's fine and there's wine in this. I think the wine is that if you don't pay for your ticket or you can't pay for your ticket, then you don't have a ticket at that point and prices change. And as planes book up, prices get higher. So the fact that the fare went up from when the credit card was denied until Kim could buy it again, I think that's a little bit whiny to say the fare went up because that's what happens with fares as flights book up. On the other hand, if she really did not get the email and if she tries, it keeps getting an oop, something went wrong when she tries to contact them, that part of it is not a whine. The reality is Americans should be able to explain this in largely the same way I did. I'm sorry that the price went up, but without financial verification, we can't block a seat for you. So yeah, with $600 more, sometimes you'll do this and it'll be a few hundred dollars less too. That's the way it works. But to not be able to allow her to get in contact with them, maybe sending the emails, maybe to the wrong email address, or maybe they went to her spam or something. And then the site saying something went wrong, that's something the airline should fix, I think. So I think the the core idea is kind of a whine, but there's some fine in terms of how this whole thing was packaged. Yeah, I know how important it is to automate things and move things online too, but I always get a little uncomfortable when somebody on the phone says, send me an email. Um, if they can't just take down the information and start the start the complaint right there. So um, she didn't have any documentation to submit, so I'm not sure why they couldn't have just um, looked into the matter from her phone call versus directing her to the website. Well, Chris, as we wrap up, my shout out this week goes to the over 4,000 people who attended the MRO Americas conference in person in Orlando. Now, in a pre-COVID time, that conference would have attracted eight to 10,000 people. So on that basis, 4,000 doesn't seem like a lot, but this has to be one of the bigger conferences that was live attended since COVID started. And while the MRO event is all people who work and support the airline industry, the fact that people are w- were willing to get on planes, staying in a hotel, go to a conference that was well spaced out, but had 400 exhibitors, I thought was a really good sign for industry demand recovery. Because if they'll go to a conference like this, then maybe people will go to financial conferences and retail conferences and Comdex and all kinds of things. So I was actually very encouraged to see sort of the resiliency of people all wearing masks, many of whom wearing stickers saying I've been vaccinated also, were willing to get out there and be part of an event like this. That's great, Ben. And my shout out is to Kansas City International Airport, which had a great week last week with Southwest announcing the addition of nine new stop routes this summer. And surprise, surprise, seven of those nine are to Florida or Southern California. Who would have thought that? Um, so as we close this week, we're going to invite our listeners to stay on for an Airlines Confidential bonus segment as Ben chats with Lydia Janow, the director of the Aviation Week MRO America's Conference that he just talked about. The return of conferences and business travel, as Ben said, is critical to the airline industry's rebound. So it's great to see this meeting success. And please uh, stick around for a few minutes to listen to how this meeting all came together. We're here live at the MRO Americas Conference in Orlando, and I'm very excited to be here with Lydia Jano, who put this whole thing together. 
Tell us about how you go about putting something like this together, Lydia. Well, thank you, Ben. Appreciate it uh, for the opportunity to have you all here. Uh, it is our 26th year of putting this event together. Obviously, we didn't have it last year, so maybe it's our 25th, if you consider it. And uh, after a year of being absent, the team and our parent company, Informa, gave us the go-ahead to say, let's do this, let's try it, all under the secure, all Informa, secure safety precautions, etc. working with the OCCC, which is the venue, Freeman, which is our contractor, and everybody else that we brought in to do this event. So, And as the vaccine started to come out, we found that more and more people were calling us to come to the event. So, hey, yeah, we're glad. We're glad our exhibitors are here. We're glad our speakers are here, our sponsors. We're just glad everyone's here. It's fantastic. And for an industry that needs these kind of events to happen and that whose livelihoods depend on these kind of events happening, Absolutely. it's great that this can be one of the conferences leading that effort. How many people both virtually and live are attending this year, Lydia? Good question, Ben. Thanks. <laughs> we have almost 400 exhibitors wow. on the show floor, as you can see. And we're I believe now we're over 8,000 people registered for both the, as when you register for the conference and the trade show, you also get the virtual next week. That's fantastic. Now, for your speakers, are most of them here live? The majority are. I think at last count, it was eight that we had virtual. And they did some nice stuff upstairs. I, be, really I bet did. they did. Yes, they you can did. do a lot of good things with things virtually today, but there's nothing like being face-to-face, -face, uh, is there? Absolutely. So what um, what do you worry about over the days when the conference is happening? And like, what could go wrong that makes you nervous? Excellent question again, Ben. <laughs> You're hitting me with them. <laughs> well, it's those companies that perhaps at the last minute weren't able to attend for whatever reasons. We do have a couple of them that unfortunately could not show up. We wish them well and hope to see them next year. Another concern was we had uh, more people coming on site than expected, so we ran out of lanyards. <laughs> we have a shipment coming in, but we have run out of lanyards. We do promise those that don't have their lanyards to have them there this afternoon. I think everyone was just so excited. They, they did. They held, they're holding to the rules, as you can see. They're being very cautious about everything. So I think, I think it's pretty good. Well, everyone I've talked to so far at the show is so excited to be here. They're so happy to see other people that they know, see people from the industry, see people walking around, seeing all the trade show things. It's terrific yeah. to see this kind of business back. And a big piece of business travel for the airline industry, Lydia, Absolutely. is people going to trade shows and conventions. So this part of yep. the business coming back is really important for the whole industry. Definitely. No, definitely. It's an important part of the business, too. MRO, as you know, and as planes start to fly, these people have to get up and running into, back into business again. So we're delighted to have put the event on. We're delighted that we had the support of those people that are here. And again, not with us, but in spirit. And uh, we look forward to the next one. We really well, that's do. right. And these are the people who keep the planes in the air, right? Yeah, they are. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. So, thank you so thank much, you. Lydia. Thanks for putting on this conference in a time that must have been really, really difficult. And there had to be a lot of changing rules and what you couldn't, couldn't do. But to make it happen and see it so successful with all these exhibitors and all these people here, it's really, really great. Thank you so much. It. Thank you. Thank you again, Ben. Thank you for being here and doing this. 
Appreciate it. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.